I'm done. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Steve and the committee for asking me to come here and share my experience, strength, and hope with all of you. It's, uh, it's always good to be here. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, my story's a little different. I'm from New Jersey. That's basically why I drank the way I did. <laughs> I come from a family uh, where drinking was very accepted. Uh, yeah, almost, it seemed to me almost required, uh, at least for the males in my family. Uh, I remember people, of course, these were all my perceptions. I don't know if they're true or not true, but they were true inside my head. These are the things that I heard and I saw. And, and, it, and it seemed like it was important to know how to drink like a man. I didn't know exactly what that meant when I was a, a kid. I don't know if I know now. Uh, and it was important to uh, know how to hold your liquor. I still don't know exactly what that means either, but these were important things. I knew what alcoholics were, though, from the time I was a little kid. Alcoholics, being an alcoholic didn't have anything to do with how much you drank. Being an alcoholic had to do with whether you went to work. If you go to work, you're not an alcoholic. If you drink at home, you're not an alcoholic. Alcoholics are people that hang out on the corner with a bottle in their pocket or, or uh, uh, you know, live off somebody else's uh, uh, work but, but don't go to work themselves, don't pay their bills, irresponsible. As long as you go to work every day. As long as you drink at home, in my family, you can drink as much as you want and you're not an alcoholic. We did have one alcoholic, though. That was my Uncle Russ. And Russ was an alcoholic, very bright guy. Uh, went to, uh, after the war, after World War II, he uh, went, to, went to school on a GI Bill, finished college. Finished all of law school except two classes. And he got a job working in a bar and never finished law school. He uh, he was you know bright guy very articulate and uh, he, and he would uh, thank you this is my wife D. Uh, he uh, Uncle Russ uh, uh, would uh, you know get a job uh, you know any kind of a job and and he'd work his way up very quickly because he was bright hardworking good work ethic and. Uh, and then he'd start drinking. And when he started drinking, he'd quit going to work. He'd end up in jail. He'd wreck his car. He'd go through the windshield, be in the hospital. And my dad's role in all this was to go get Uncle Russ and rescue him and bring him back to our house. And he did that over and over and over again. Uh, and then Russ would, you know, gradually over several months heal up, whatever the issues were that time. And uh, finally, he'd run out of his savings, run out of money, and and have to get a job, and he'd get a job loading trucks. Next thing you know, he's the yard foreman. Next thing you know, he's the manager, and everything's going great. And then he'd go out and get drunk again and go through this whole process over again. Uh, that was my dad's side. My mom's side was not too different. Her her dad was uh, just a hard-working guy, immigrant from the Ukraine, came over here and uh, worked days in a factory in Connecticut and, and started a business at night as a locksmith. And after work, he'd get trashed, get drunk, come home, beat up the my grandmother and beat up the kids. And that's just how life was. Uh, my dad, I, I never, my sister would say my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, I don't know if he was or not. He maybe at times was a heavy drinker, but if he was alcoholic, it was overshadowed by my mom's schizophrenia. So, you know, it, it, there was lots of lots of things going on in our house. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a bad place. You know, it was really kind of a kind of a nice childhood, although things were got more confusing as the years went on. Uh, I wanted to find out what uh, I wanted to find out what getting drunk was all about. I, I could drink as a kid. 
Uh, my job, uh, you know, dad, my dad was in the service, uh, worked in uh, Brooklyn Naval Yard, a chief hospital corpsman. Uh, ran the pharmacy there, but I, but he was home in the evenings and especially on the weekends and he'd be working around the yard. My job was to go get him a beer. And the pay for getting him a beer was you get to suck the suds off the top. And I, you know, I like that. And, uh, I don't know if I like the taste. I never felt intoxicated, but I like being with my dad. I like doing something with my dad. That was really important to me. Uh, so I asked Russ one day, uh, if you could get drunk on beer. I wanted to know what this getting drunk was all about. It was like a, a, a rite of passage for me. I was about 12. And uh, and Russ said, no, you can't. You know, he kind of looked at me. You can't get drunk on beer. Beer's a beverage. Beer's something you drink when it's hot outside. If you want to get drunk, you got to drink whiskey. And we didn't have any whiskey, so I walked away, you know, very disappointed. But uh, a few months later, Christmas came around, and a... Uh, Either a half-gallon or a gallon jug of wine appeared in the refrigerator. And so I asked Russ, hey, Russ, can you get drunk on wine? And he thought for a minute, and he said, you know, I guess if you drank enough, you could get drunk on wine. So I thought, hey, here's my chance. You know, how much is enough, though? I don't know. I don't know. So I started snitching a little bit at a time, putting it in. We had a canning rack in the basement, and I started filling up these mason jars. I had two mason jars that I washed out and... And so I got them about two-thirds full and went down there on Christmas Eve day uh, and just juggalugged them, just drank them right down. Nothing social about my first drink. Uh, and I was standing down there in the basement, you know, thinking, why would somebody drink this stuff? You know, I thought it was going to taste like Welch's grape juice, and it, and it didn't at all. And, uh, and I'm standing down there in the basement looking at the, the bare light bulb hanging down from the cord, and I started to laugh. And I, uh, and I just couldn't stop laughing and everything was funny and I, and I got this feeling inside, inside my belly, you know, it just felt warm. And, and every time I took a breath, I could feel it in my lungs and my, my fingertips felt tingly and I just felt good, you know, it felt, I went upstairs and talked to my sisters and, uh, and just everything they did was funny. I had, uh, two younger sisters, uh, one two years younger and one, uh, Three, uh, one five years younger. Uh, they both uh, went on into medicine too. One became a nurse, the other became a doctor. Um, but at the time, they were just little kids, and and uh, everything they did was funny. I finally got tired and went upstairs and took a nap and uh, woke up later that evening with a little bit of a headache, but really no worse for wear. And I, I you know, I didn't have access to to wine all the time, but I put a bookmark there. And I said, this is, this is cool. I like this. I want to do this again. Well, I come from a town, I come from a town in Jersey where, now these are all my perceptions, where when you get to be about, oh, 13, 14, 15, you got to join one of the groups. And, and we had three groups. And the one group were the guys that, uh, you know, the lames, uh, the pocket protector guys, the guys that did their homework. I didn't want to be one of them. I did, for nothing in the world did I want to be one of them. And the, uh, the next group were the collegiates, the rah-rahs, the jots, we called them, the guys that played football and, uh, you know, sucked up to the teachers. And they wore, in those days, they wore Madras shirts and, and white chino pants and penny loafers with uh, dimes in them. Uh, I, I, my, my family, I didn't have enough money to have the right clothes. I had two pairs of blue jeans 
Uh, I mean, we weren't poor, but that's all we had. You know, I had two pairs of blue jeans. If one was in the washer, the other was on me, and and that was it. Uh, but the other group were the hoods, and I like the hoods. I just. Yeah, they all seemed to come from families where there were, you know, issues, whatever it was. Either one parent was dead or their parents were divorced or, and there wasn't that many people divorced in those days. Uh, uh, and, but I, but I just, you know, they seemed cool. I come from Soprano land. Any, anybody here watch Sopranos on TV? That's, that's the part of Jersey I'm from, North Jersey. It seemed like all my friends were Italian. They really weren't. They were, a couple of Polacks and some Irish and a couple of Germans thrown in, but it seemed like they were all Italian. Uh, I was walking home from school one day, so I became a hood. I combed my hair back and started hanging out with the guys and, and pretty soon uh, got to be friends. And I was walking home from school one day with a guy named Larry Pachetto. And uh, Larry said to me, Don, you ever been drunk? I said, yeah, I've been drunk. I didn't tell him it was down in the basement when I was 12. I said, yeah, I've been drunk. He says, cool, we're going to a, we're going to a dance Friday night. Do you want to come along? We're going to get some whiskey. I said, yeah, yeah. So I had a little money. I cut lawns on the weekends, you know, and, and uh, I said, yeah, count me in. It uh, cost a buck 67 for a half pint of Fleischmann's uh, blended whiskey. And uh, I said, yeah, just I'll be there. Larry went one way home, and I turned uh, the other direction to go to my house and and my feet didn't even touch the ground. I was the happiest guy on earth. I just, you know, I had arrived. I had everything I wanted. I was hanging out with the guys. We're going to a dance, going to get some whiskey. Remember, if you want to get drunk, you got to drink whiskey. And I drank that wine, but I had never drank whiskey. So now we're going to get some whiskey. Who knows? We might even talk to some girls. Probably going to be some girls there if it's a dance. So I... uh we met Friday night and, and met out, out behind a junior high school. I never even went into the dance. We just stood outside sitting on the, sitting on the windowsill, drinking that whiskey out of the bottle with an orange crush chaser. That was great, man. I just, and I got that warm feeling. It was even better than the wine. You know, I was, Alice Higdon, a busty redhead came by with a couple of her girlfriends and we sat and talked to them and I, you know, I couldn't ask for anything more. I was just all everything, all my jokes were funny and I was debonair and everybody paid attention to what I was saying. It was just, it was great. Uh, and again, I walked home that night. My feet didn't touch the ground. I was the happiest guy on earth and that kind of set the stage course. I blew curfew that night. Uh, and I blew curfew every time I went out because I always went out and drank and I, and I always drank, you know, I always drank to blackout if I could. I mean, I drank till there wasn't any left or until I blacked out. Uh, I don't. I don't know why. You know, I can't give you a real answer, but that's just the way I did it. Uh, I had. Uh, I had detention uh, from at school every single day for the rest of my high school career. Everybody else got out at three. I got out at four. That's just how it was. I had uh, restriction. I was on restriction every single month. Uh, and that didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't allowed out. What did that mean? That meant I had to climb out the window and jump off the roof instead of going out the front door. And then I get put on restriction for another month. You know, so what? I had my buddies. I could go drinking and, and have, I don't know if you guys uh, have ever heard Cliff Roach, Cliff R. from Oceanside, California. He said, I like to have fun. I want to have fun. Not like those Al-Anons. Al-Anons have fun. We had fun last night. Uh, 
I'm an alcoholic. I want to have fun. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to college. My dad wanted me to go to college. I, I wanted to take auto shop is really what I... And they made me take uh, uh, algebra and English and all these, you know, pre-college courses. Uh, I'll show them. I flunked them all. You know, I'm not going to... I'll go out and get drunk and then sleep through class. That's what I'm going to do. I did finally, by the skin of my teeth, finish high school. My dad uh, sent me... Uh, my dad was from Montana. Uh, so he... Uh, he was scared to death. Uh, you know, by then I was using drugs and, uh, you know, into lots of other stuff. So as soon as I finished my last final exam, my dad grabbed me, put me on a plane, took me out to Montana, put me on a cattle ranch for the summer, and in the fall I started uh, college. Uh, but just I never went to any of the classes, so I flunked out of that too, got involved in drugs out there, and uh, flunked out of school, came back to, came back to Jersey, and... Uh, Persona non grata, though, and my parents weren't real happy about all these shenanigans, uh, so uh, I couldn't stay at home. I couldn't go back to my parents' house, and I was hanging out in town with some of my ne'er-do-well buddies, and one of my friend's girlfriends uh, said, well, you can stay at our house. I said, stay at your house? Your mom will never let me stay there. She says, oh, yes, she will. She's an alcoholic. I thought, what does that have to do with it? But I, it was cold. It was wintertime. You know, it was cold in Jersey in the winter. I said, well, okay. You know, so I went over and met her mom. Well, her mom said, uh, I don't have any extra beds, but I got a sleeping bag. You can sleep on the floor and, until you get a job and get yourself straightened out. And her mom started talking to me about this ANA stuff. Started talking to me about these steps and spirituality. Well, her mom had uh, four years clean and sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what kind of alcoholic she was. But I, but I got, you know, she... Uh, you know, she taught me She taught me a lot of things. She taught me how to smoke cigarettes and, and drink coffee at the same time, the way people do. Not so much now in AA, but, but then they did. You know, kind of two-handed like that, drinking coffee and talking and smoking cigarettes. And, and she told me great stories. You know, she had, uh, she had been a hider, so uh, she was a vodka drinker. And she would hide her vodka all over the house. She put it behind the oven. And then at, at Thanksgiving time, she'd be cooking turkey, and she'd have to drink this hot, hot, hot vodka from behind the oven. One time she put it in the washing machine and, and put the whole family's clothes in it. Well, she said they were mad for weeks picking little shards of glass out of their clothes. The bottle broke. One time her husband tried to restrain her, and he was, she was a big Irish lady, big husky Irish lady. Not fat, just big lady. And uh, her husband tried to restrain her when she was drunk, and she flipped him and dislocated his shoulder. You know, and I thought that was cool. I thought, wow, man, this lady's happening. So she wanted me to go to one of these AA meetings, you know, and I didn't know what it was. I said, yeah, oh, whatever, sure, you know, I'm not, I don't have any place else to live, so i got to kind of go along with the program. So we had it set for Saturday to go to this AA meeting. Well, Friday, uh, this old girlfriend called me up and said she had a friend who was uh, dealing uh, crystal meth and, uh, and asked me if I wanted to try it. She says, they'll turn you on if you want to try it. I said, well, yeah, you know, I don't know much about speed kills. That's about all I knew. I said, but yeah, I want to try it. I'm an equal opportunity alcoholic. So I went over there and uh, slammed methamphetamine for the first time. Let me tell you, that's quite a rush. You know, I came back to I came back to Peggy W's house that night. My eyes were like pie plates, staring up at the ceiling. I couldn't sleep. I don't think I slept at all. 
And we got up in the morning, Saturday morning, and went to uh, St. Andrew's Church, went to the, the church house kind of behind the church or on the side of the church. And I thought, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. I don't get along with churches. I don't get along with all this God stuff. And I don't know what I'm doing here. And we walked in. There were only about three people at the meeting. Uh, it was in a kind, of a kind of a long, thin basement with a kitchenette behind us. And this guy comes bounding out, some Italian guy named Frank, comes bounding out carrying a birthday cake, singing happy birthday. And I'm thinking, boy, these people are weird. I guess, I, you know, and they were old, though. You know, they were, I mean, that was part of the problem. I was 18 years old. These people are old, old, old. They're like 30 years old, 35 years old. I'm thinking, you know, by the time you get to be that age, heck, you might as well go to A&A. You know, get a four-door car, get married, and go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, what else are you going to do? So I only went to that one. I might have gone to one other, but I think that was the only one I went to. I, I thought this is great for these poor alcoholics, you know, but I, I, this isn't what I want to do. I want to have, I told you, I want to have fun. I want to race cars and chase girls and get in fights and drink, and I want more drugs too. And, uh, and I had a lot of stuff to do. I had to go to jail a bunch of times and get arrested for drugs a bunch of times and finally got sentenced to a drug program in uh, New York, spent a couple of years there. We used to have, uh, AA, uh, a panels come in, and we just thought those poor alcoholics, you know, they have to go to these meetings for the rest of their lives. You know, at least when we finish this program, we don't have to come back anymore. You know, we're done. I get my probation over. I'm out of here. Uh, but when I finished, uh, when I got out of there, I went back to school. It was kind of a struggle getting back to college. I, uh, but I found, but, uh, you know, I kind of talked my way back in. I had flunked out of two schools. My GPA, my first GPA was 0.00. And, and my second GPA was uh, 0.02. I passed one class, one two-credit linguistics class, and then flunked the rest of them. Uh, so when I applied, when I applied to the local college, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson in, in North Jersey, uh, they turned me down. And I was, you know, a nice guy like me. I just want to go to school. So I, I called them up. I said, well, is there anybody I can talk to? And they said, well, yeah, you can talk to the dean of students if you want. So I made an appointment, came in, talked to her. Now, I was still, I was actually still in the phase-out program, kind of in the halfway house of this drug program. And I, uh, I only had, the only clothes I had were like goodwill clothes that were donated to the program. And I was doing construction. So I always, you know, I got off work at 3, 3.30. No, 3. And I had, uh, I always had, uh, always had concrete on me. I did concrete work. So I'd have it in my hair, beyond my clothes. And even if you brush it off, it leaves big gray spots all over you. Uh, but I didn't have time to go home and take a shower. So I just went there after work and I went in and talked to the dean of students. I said, well, I just, you know, I had this drug problem, but I, you know, I went through the program and I'm okay now. You know, I've been clean a couple of years and, uh, you know, I just want a chance to go to school. She said, forget it. You know, why, why would we want to take somebody like you? We got lots of good students that want to go to school here. I was crushed. I was crushed. I walked out of there and I asked her uh, secretary if there was anybody else I could talk to. And uh, she said, well, you know, you can talk to the president of the university. You know, not like it's going to do you any good. And I said, well, okay, I'll make an appointment to see him. So I came back a couple of weeks later and... Uh, 
And this, uh, the dean of students saw me walking through the lobby. She just laughed at me. She said, you'll never get in here. You'll never get in. And I was just so demoralized. I can't even tell you. I was maybe 21. So I uh, went in and met with the president, and I, you know, pled my case and, uh, you know, said, look, I just want a chance to go to school. He said, what do you want to do? I said, you know, maybe take a couple of classes at night. And he said, forget it. Forget it. No way. No way. And I, my heart just sank to the floor. He said, but I'll tell you what. I'll let you take one class. You can take one class at night, and we'll see how you do. And if you do okay, come back and talk to me. Well, I was overjoyed. I was like, I never saw this movie, but I've heard people talk about Jim Carrey. When he asks this girl if there's any chance she'll go out with him, and she says, there's like one chance in a million I'll go out with you. And he says, great! One chance in a million, that's all I need. And that's how I felt. I went straight over to the bookstore, and I walked in there, and I figured, you know, I'm not that dumb. There's got to be a system here. There's got to be some trick to this whole thing. These other kids can pass these classes. How come I can't? I went into the bookstore. I said, look, are there any, you got any books on how to study? There's got to be a way to do this. And the guy said, yeah, we got a couple of books over there in the corner on how to study. I bought both of them, took them home, and I yellowed them and underlined them. And, I, and what do you think it said? It said stuff like show up for class. You know, show up for class, pay attention, take notes. Sit in the front row, because if you sit in the back, you'll stare out the window and daydream, which is what I always did, if I wasn't high or drunk. And uh, so I thought, well, I can do this. And I, and I really put my mind to it, and I got an A in that class. And then I got a couple of more. Now, I know this is AA, but if there's anybody here shooting heroin, this is just a pearl, take it for what it's worth. But quitting shooting heroin helped improve my grades. Just... Just my experience. <laughs> and in those days then, I, did, I didn't really drink. I drank very, very rarely. Because uh, I, I had a tendency to overdrink. Anybody here ever overdrink? You know, I never meant to overdrink, but it just seemed to happen, you know. And, you know, after a few drinks, I'd forget how many I had. And, and why did I not want to overdrink anyway? I don't remember, you know. And next thing you know, I'd be blacked out and in some kind of pickle that I had to talk my way out of. And so I was very, very careful. Drank only just on rare occasions. Uh, but I got good grades, borrowed some money, went to school full-time, kept getting A's. Uh, one of my professors one day suggested I, I said, if you ever want to go to a better school, I'll write your recommendation. So I started asking around what's a better school. I ended up transferring to uh, Columbia in New York. Got a scholarship to go there. I didn't have any money. I mean, I didn't have anything. But they gave me a scholarship, and I, I asked, do you mind if I switch to pre-med? You know, I thought they would care what I studied. They said, no, we don't care. Be pre-med. Worked hard, kept on working hard. and uh, But as time was going on, my drinking started to increase. You know, slowly, just a little... Well, I had... I have a medical condition. I have insomnia. Anybody here ever have insomnia? And I, and I, especially after like studying calculus and all that stuff, you know, I couldn't sleep. I'd have all these equations going through my head. I'd sh shut my eyes, you know, just squeeze them shut and I couldn't sleep. And I realized if I just drank a beer, uh, it would, it would help my nerves. It helped my nerves to calm down and I could sleep. 
And then, and then that, after a while, that didn't work, so I drank two beers. And that, then it worked again, you know. And, and then I was, pretty soon I was up to six beers, and then I had to pee all night long, so I had to find another solution. I went back to whiskey. I started drinking bourbon. And if I just had, like, just an inch in a water glass, you know, that was okay. And, and then two inches, and then four inches, and then two glasses, and pretty soon I'm up to half a quart, and then I got the same problem again, you know. And then, then I get into these, uh, I, I, I forget why I wasn't going to drink, and, and I get into these pickles. Embar- just embarrassing situations. Do you guys ever do that? Did you ever lose your car? I used to lose my car all the time. How could you lose a car? You know, it's like big. I forget where I put my car. Or I get up in the morning, and my girlfriend, whoever I'm dating, would be, would be angry. And I wouldn't know what the problem was. She's, and she'd say something like, Don't you remember what you did last night? And I always said, yeah, I remember. I had never had any idea. Not once did I have the slightest idea. Uh, how would I know what I did last night? I was blacked out like I always was. And then I have to go through the process of calling up the people we were with or checking my car, seeing if I wrecked it, seeing if there was blood on it and anything like that. And, uh, and there never was, thank God. Uh, then I'd have to quit drinking. I mean, if, if it was a bad situation. And that was the only way to get through it. I quit drinking, make the ultimate sacrifice. And I was good at quitting drinking. You know, I could stay quit for a weekend or a week or, you know, maybe a month. Uh, I got so good at And that's how I knew I wasn't an alcoholic, though. The alcoholics can't quit drinking. So I always had, I always had that control. I knew I could quit drinking. I got so good at quitting drinking, sometimes I would quit drinking every day. I quit drinking in the morning, and then by like four o'clock, I'd forget why did I quit drinking. And I start drinking again. I have to quit again the next day. Uh, but I got through medical school, got through my training, and uh, uh, was uh, started dating my wife. My wife D. About uh, we've been dating off and on. Well, she says it wasn't dating off and on. She. I thought when she came to visit me in treatment that that was a date. She says that that... (laughs) She says that's not a date. She's kind of picky, though. You know, she can be picky about things. We were on a camping trip one time up in Alaska. You know, we're like in the wilderness. I mean, if that's not enough to make you nervous. And so I was just having, you know, a couple of drinks to relax, like a quart of vodka. And I, and I accidentally, you know, in one of these campers, you know, they look the same on both sides when you walk down the hallway. One side is a bathroom and the other side's a refrigerator. And I peed in the refrigerator. I mean, not like, how many people have peed in the refrigerator? See that half the room. And she got upset about that. She thought it was like a big deal because I peed in the refrigerator. But we worked through some of those things over the years. Anyway, uh, she uh, she got so picky that she wouldn't go out with me for a little five or ten year period in the middle of that. <laughs> but I had really enjoyed I really enjoyed this the, you know having a relationship. So I decided, well, I, I want to get married. She wouldn't marry me. I didn't have anybody else in mind. I looked around till I found some little girl and talked her into marrying me. And I was a disaster. I mean, it really got bad after I threw the watermelon at her during our uh, honeymoon. Went downhill from there. 
And toward the end of that, now I'm working as a doc by this time. I had, uh, I own an urgent care center in uh, Southern California. At that time, it was quite large. Uh, we had about almost 60 employees, and uh, I had about 20 docs that contracted with me at a bunch of different specialties, family practice and urgent care, and then we had all the other specialties there. And uh, and I worked all day, and it was a lot of work, and of course that makes you even more nervous, and I'd come home at night and drink and fight with her and pull up my 44 and put it on the... I was a kitchen drinker. I was never a closet drinker, but I drank right in the kitchen because I kept my vodka in the freezer, and it was just handy that way. And I'd uh, drink that vodka and put those shells in the 44 and try to figure out, and it felt good. That cold steel felt good to me. Try to f- try to figure out where the blood's going to go, you know. I'd taken care of people who had tried to commit suicide and, and blew it, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, not that I really wanted to commit suicide, but I didn't know what else to do. You know, I knew... I mean, I was a physician. I knew that no other physicians had the problem that I had. I mean, physicians don't have problems like that, just pieces of crap like me. And I'd sit there with that 44 pulling the trigger back and easing it forward and pulling it back and easing it forward. And then I'd take the shells out and put them away in the closet. And then 10 minutes later, I'd pull them back out again. And I did that for the whole summer. And she finally got tired of watching me and left and... Which was fine, and uh, and I called Dee, and uh, she came over and dropped off a big book and said, don't call me until you get help. I thought that was really rude. If that's not a rude thing to do to somebody who really, <laughs> you know, is really feeling bad. And... Uh, but I called up Betty Ford uh, the next day, and, and uh, they were very rude to me on the phone. They, they said, uh, well, this is a, you know, you have to sign up for 30 days. I said, look, I'm, I'm committed to this. This is Thursday. i got to be back at work on Monday, but I'm, I'll come for the weekend. And they said, well, if you're not coming for 30 days, you're not coming here. I said, well, you know, then give me somebody else's phone number. You know, i got good insurance. I don't need you guys. And they gave me scripts down in La Jolla. And I called right away. I, I dialed it as, right as soon as I hung up, and Scripps said exactly the same thing, and I never figured out, how did they find out what Betty Ford just told me? I'm sure she must have called and told them what to tell me. And I said, look, I can't come for 30 days. i got to practice. i got employees. i got all these patients i got to take care of. I'm an, I'm an important guy. Don't you know that? And they said, well, you know, then you're not coming here if you're not coming for 30 days. I said, give me somebody else's phone number. So they gave me a place called uh, Capistrano by the Sea, and I called down there. They had this wonderful Al-Anon intake person, and uh, she said, Dr. Kurth, we understand how important you are. And I said, finally, you know, I'm making some progress here. She said, if you want to come for three days, that, that'll be just fine. I said, really? She said, yeah, yeah. She said, you'll have to leave AMA. I said, AMA? She said, yeah, against medical advice. But I have a keen alcoholic mind, and I thought to myself, leave against medical advice? I'm a doctor. I'll just advise myself to leave. <laughs> I don't have to leave against medical advice. <laughs> so I, I told her, I'll come down this afternoon. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I remembered I had another liter of 100-proof Smirnoffs in the freezer. 
And I, I knew that they wouldn't want me to drink when I get out. And I mean, I don't want to throw it away. What are you going to do? Throw it down the drain? So I cracked that top and I started drinking that vodka and I forgot to go to the treatment center. But I remembered the next morning. I actually thought it was still the same day, but it was Friday. And I uh, got up and got dressed and went down there. And the only thing I did right, I got to tell you this, the only thing I did right was decided to try to do what they were telling me to do. I'd actually been in a few different treatment centers and uh, lock wards over the years. But I never followed anybody's directions. I never did what anybody told me to do. I mean, why would I? I know better. I'm a doctor. Why would I want to listen to these counselors and these nurses? I'm a physician. But this time I decided, even if they don't know what they're doing, I'm going to try to listen to them. And, and so I did that. And, and my shrink came around. Well, it was a comedy of errors. First thing they wanted to do was put me on the alcohol ward. I said, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I already explained that to you. I'm only here because I had these suicidal thoughts. So she said, let me get the shrink on the phone. So she calls up the psychiatrist. He says, look, we only got two units in this hospital. One is the locked psych unit, and the other is the open CD unit. You choose. Well, I don't, I'd already been on a locked unit. I don't want to go back. It's like jail if you've never been on one. So I, I said, well, I'll go to the CD unit. You know, I figured there, if things get bad, I can hop the fence. I don't have to stay, you know. But it's hard to break out of a locked unit. So I went in there and, and started trying to follow directions and do what they told me to do. And on the third day, the shrink comes around and uh, I says, look, I got to go. I got to leave. I only agreed to three days in this place. He said, why don't you, you're not even done with detox. Why don't you stick around a couple of days, see if you can figure out what's going on here. I thought that was really rude. I said, okay, two more days, and I'm out of here. So he came around the fifth day. But I was showing up. You know, I was trying to read that big book, you know. I tried to read it before. I actually had several. People used to drop them off on my desk in a brown paper bag at work. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of rude people in my life. I got one in the mail in a brown wrapper with no return address, no note, no nothing. So I, but I'm, now I'm trying to read that. And even when I tried, I get stuck on that first page where you get to the part with the tombstone and a small cold beer. And, and I get to that part and I think, I don't know what this guy's problem is, but he's got nothing to do with my life. So I never got past that. I never read anymore. But this time, so I'm in this place and I'm trying to read it. I'm reading the words line after line after line. None of it is making any sense to me. I'm going to these groups. None of it is making any sense. One counselor, I got, one counselor tried to tell me that alcoholism is a disease. And I thought to myself, you chicken, you lily-livered, if you had the guts to admit your own moral failing, you wouldn't have to make excuses like that for yourself. But I'm going to the groups and I'm listening to these people. And a shrink uh, comes around on the fifth day and I said, look, I got to go. I got to leave. I got payroll to make. I got patients. He says, stay two more days. I said, okay, two more days and I'm out of here. And on the seventh day he came around... And I wouldn't have believed that I had said this, except I could hear myself saying it. And what I said to him was, he came and said, I'm going to send you home tomorrow. And I said, you know what, Jim, why don't you decide when it's time for me to go home? Because I don't think my decisions have been too good lately. And so, and that's a scary thing to hear yourself say, i got to tell you that. And uh, so, but I did, you know, and I stayed there 31 days, and then I went into their... Uh, partial program and then I went into their aftercare and, and my first day back home after a month I went 
I went to the local uh, Alano Club in my town, kind of a seedy little place, you know, but I've grown to love it over the past 12 years. Uh, and I was scared to death to walk in. I just finally, I stood out in the parking lot. I finally just took a deep breath and walked in, and, and nobody even noticed I was there. One old crazy lady said, welcome home. And that was all anybody said to me, you know, it was, which was fine with me, you know. I sat over in the corner against the wall, and, and but I kept, but I had heard somebody say, go to 30 and 30. So I thought, I could do that, you know. So I started showing up at these meetings every single day. At my lunch hour, I'd go over there and get a meeting, and on the weekends, and sometimes two or three a day, and I got real connected, and I, I thought, you know, I could do 60 and 60, and I thought I could do 90 and 90, and I thought I could do this for 180 days, and pretty soon I'd gone to a meeting every single day for a year, and people were asking me to be, you know, treasurer and secretary and take on stuff like that. I had a sponsor, he still do, uh, good guy, uh, worked, worked through all the steps and things. For a long time, though, if you're new, i got to tell you this, for me, I had zero hope. I had no hope that I could recognize anywhere in my body. Uh, I just kept on showing up. I just had no place else to go but to put a, put a bullet in my head. So I just kept going to those meetings. Uh, when I was uh, six months sober, I uh, started having some abdominal pain and uh, some other symptoms, and I called up my gastroenterologist, and he said, well, it sounds like you got Crohn's disease, but it could be cancer. I was 44. I said, but, and I, so I said, well, you know, I'll get to you when I get to you. But the pain finally got worse and worse and worse. I went in for a colonoscopy and, uh, and he woke me up. He says, you got cancer. I said, get out of here. He says, no, you got cancer. Look at it. You can see it on the monitor. And I had a big old cancer at the ileocecal valve, uh, obliterating the valve. Uh, and, uh, I said, well, take it out. He said, I'm going to take it out. I said, just biopsy it until it's not there anymore. He said, I can't do that. I had already told him I wasn't staying. I'm six months sober now. I already told him I wasn't staying in the hospital. So he booked, he booked the surgery. The only surgeon that was on happened to be a, uh, in recovery at the time. Uh, the, other, the other surgeon at our hospital was away uh, that week. So he booked me for the next morning. And uh, I talked to the surgeon. I said, you know... I've had some problems with these opiates before. Uh, he said, well, I'll tell you, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you how to take them, and you're going to follow my directions. I said, okay, I can live with that. And uh, I got through that. You know, big surgery. I had a chemotherapy for a year, uh, which was not a lot of fun. But, my, you know, I had a lot of support. I had all my AA family and all my friends. And I didn't go to IDAA, didn't want nothing to do with the doctors, you know. I... Uh, they had a caduceus group in, at that time at my local hospital, but I stood, I stood away from them. You know, I, I just, I just was so filled with shame and guilt and uh, self-loathing. Uh, there was no way, uh, there just was no way I could have done anything like come to IDAA. You know, I, I couldn't even go. We had a, we have a silk sheet meeting in our area. It's called Pioneer Meeting. It's a Pacific Group uh, format meeting. Uh, but I, I didn't feel comfortable there. You know, I stayed at the club with the bikers and the, and the guys that uh, slept in the abandoned cars. You know, that's what I felt comfortable with for a long, long time, for a long time. And I finally started getting involved. Uh, I ran for city council 
when I was about a year sober, and, and it took him about 10 minutes. Uh, well, you know, I had this cancer, and I didn't know if I was going to live or die, and I thought if there's anything I've ever wanted to do, I need to make a list and go do it, because I might not be alive, you know, a year or two from now. So I always wanted to run for public office. I ran for city council. It took him 10 minutes to find out I was, I was an alcoholic and an addict and had a record, and they put it right on the front page of the paper. So I, I didn't get elected. <laughs> But everybody that read that paper started calling me up saying, could you help my dad? He's, a, he's an alcoholic. I know he's going to die if he doesn't get help. Can I bring him in to see you? And, and I'd say, yeah, sure. And can you help my daughter? She's addicted to methamphetamine. And can you get her into a program? And so my practice overnight began to turn into an addiction practice. And my local hospital wouldn't let me follow my own patients because I wasn't certified in addiction medicine. So I, I never heard. I, you know, I told you I didn't think it was a disease. Somebody told me about ASAM, and I called him up and started taking classes, got certified in addiction medicine. While I was there, Joe Galletta, I don't know if anybody knows Joe. Some of you do. Joe uh, recruited me to come work at Loma Linda. I said, I don't want to work there. I have a practice. You know, I'm just here trying to learn about this. And uh, he said, well, you might have fun doing it. You know, maybe one weekend a month. I said, yeah, okay, well, one weekend a month. By the time I got my ASAM certification and got on staff, I was, uh, uh, he, he had left and they were looking for a medical director and they, I worked, I worked one day in February and then they put me on for three weekends in March. I said, look, I don't want to work this much. They said, well, why don't you apply for the director job? Then you can work weekdays. I said, okay, maybe we can work something out. I ended up being their medical director and I've done that for the past 10 years. You know, I get to, I get to talk to newcomers. Every day, I get to talk to brand new newcomers wet every single day, and I love it. And I get to, you know, the detox part, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. If, uh, that's not the challenge. The challenge is to share with them my experience, strength, and hope, and, and try to light that flame of hope in them uh, that it takes to be able to become a part of what we have here. And it's really exciting for me. And, uh, you know, I... I like being right in the middle of AA, uh, uh, and that's and that's where I am. I do H and I every Friday. I go up to the local jail and bring a meeting in to the guys that can't get out, and uh, sponsor a bunch of guys. I got a great bunch of guys I sponsor, and some of them stay sober, and some of them don't. You know, uh, I'm just there to carry the message. But there's a a core of guys that now have stayed sober for a couple three years, and they're doing great. Now they're starting to sponsor people. Uh, I. Uh, I'm an expert on the big book, I told you. People used to drop them off on my front doorstep in a brown paper bag, so I'm the literature person at my club. I make sure we got big books. Everybody gets a big book that walks in there. Money or not, doesn't matter, they get a big book. And I uh, I get to do a lot of fun stuff. Uh, I finally, uh, finally talked Dee into marrying me two years ago. And uh, we, we've got a wonderful life together that we're building, you know, one day at a time. I get to practice these principles in my own home. Pretty cool. I got a good life, you know. Happiness is, that's, that's our theme here. You know, I got a lot of happiness. Happiness is being a part of all of you and having a life uh, one day at a time, having a life that I never, ever believed uh, could exist for me, for somebody like me. Thank you.